Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi Hattie, lovely to see you this sunny afternoon. I hope you're managing to keep cool. Yeah, just about, just about. Got the fan on, got the ice lollies in the freezer, it's all good. And it's very nice to have you here as well. And I would love to know, are you reading anything good at the moment? Well, I'm listening to another audiobook from Borough Box, but this time it's called Shakespearean on Life and Language in Times of Disruption, which seems very appropriate. It's by a writer called Robert McCrum, and it came out a couple of years ago. It's quite a personal book about his relationship to Shakespeare and what Shakespeare wrote. But it's all about why we keep returning to the words of Shakespeare more than any other writer in history, time and time again. Mm, definitely an interesting one. I know that there are so many of these sort of retellings of Shakespeare that just come out in cycles like that. So I do find it so interesting how, as you say, a writer can have a really personal relationship with another writer from centuries ago. You know, that's such a weird position to be in. Yeah, it is. It is very, I think, more than any other writer, we still he's still so much part of our day-to-day -day life, the way we quote him, the way we go and see a play of his, and the story seems to be telling us something about the world we live in now. And I, I don't know what it is about him as a writer that does that, but it does seem to be the case. So what about you, Hattie? What are you reading at the moment? Yeah, I have actually just finished reading Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi, which is something I've been meaning to pick up for years. Listeners, you can't see the face that Kate is making at me right now because she's been recommending it to me for years and years and years. But I finally picked it up and I loved it. But it, yeah, it's a such a page turning, heart wrenching story. And I didn't even realise until I finished it that it's a retelling of a Greek myth. I think the myth of Antigone. And that is obviously something that we're very, very fond of here on the Love Your Library podcast. So a, a great one, a great recommendation, Kate. Thank you. Yeah, we love a retelling of a myth. Always an interesting way of, a, of approaching a story. So today's episode of Love Your Library features an interview with Sam Kenyon, whose debut novel, I Am Not Raymond Wallace, came out earlier this year. Yes, yeah, Sam was a great person to talk to. He's got a beautiful voice and he had some fascinating stories about his time as a musical theatre performer. And although this is, as you say, his debut novel, he's a really experienced and successful writer in terms of theatre. Some of his work's been produced by the RSC and so on. You'll hear all about his novel when we hear our chat later. And then later on in the episode, we'll be hearing from Ren, one of our library team assistants, and from Cordelia, a library user who's a particular fan of the audiobooks we have at Hampshire Libraries. Yeah, they both met up with me to talk about books we wanted to recommend, all of which have a link to Pride Month, which is a celebration of the LGBTQ plus communities all around the world. For now, though, let's listen to Kate's conversation with Sam Kenyon. Just before it starts, I wanted to mention the interview covers quite a range of topics, and that includes a reference to abusive language and some mild mentions of Roman sexual artefacts. Sounds intriguing to me. But if you would prefer to avoid that, you can scoot through the next 20 minutes or so to the next item in this episode. Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your debut novel, I'm Not Raymond Wallace. So can I start off by asking you to tell us what it is all about? Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here, by the way. So I Am Not Raymond Wallace. It was inspired by a true, a, a, a real life story that I was told about 20, 25 years ago. And what I took from it was about being a emerging gay man in the early 60s in New York and the complexities of navigating that existence. The story that I'm telling, which is very different from the story I was told, but is about a character called Raymond Wallace, who is on a placement at the New York Times in 1963. And he's assigned to a project which becomes a real life article that was published on December 17th, 1963, the title of which is Growth of Overt Homosexuality in City Provokes Concern. And it's a it was it's a front page paragraph followed by a massive full page article in the and I recommend it from the New York Times archive. And I thought how interesting it would be to have a character who doesn't know who they are having to navigate actually a fundamentally homophobic article and environment. 
and to find out who they are. Alongside that, as part of Raymond's research and developing sort of unconscious and conscious sexuality, he finds himself in a bar and he meets somebody called Joey. And this is a meeting that changes his life and Joey's life. And I'm interested in lots of different things. So it starts there. Then we go to 1983 and we have some letters between two characters. And then we go to to 2003 when Raymond's son, Joe, is now in Paris. And what I'm interested in in that big stretch, sort of the epic stretch in that sense over 40 years, is emotional inheritance and a legacy. So we, we might go, oh, I got the cupboard from my parents, but we don't often necessarily talk about the emotional inheritance or the things that we've inherited that might be more complex. And so we end up with somebody looking back over the whole period that we've just been reading and getting to know and trying to move forwards and to develop a sense of his own self and position within that history in what is for him the contemporary period. Yeah, and without any spoilers, that's probably a fair description of it. It explores, therefore, uh, the differences in terms of cultures and historical perspectives and moments and opportunities and rights, actually, in the 60s, 80s and 2000s which is a, a, a fascinating thing to look at. And I want to turn to that a little bit in a minute. But can I pick up where you were talking about uh, emotional inheritance? And that's something that that I've, I've heard you talk about before. Without giving spoilers, but could you give examples of how somebody's, that sort of, uh, that legacy that you're talking about, not even necessarily in this book, just to sort of be explicit to people about exactly what you mean by that? Yeah, so actually I can do something that that is, I mean, a tiny spoiler, as it were, but it's not a spoiler in terms of the story, it's just the detail. So Raymond is 21 years old, and for his 21st birthday, his mother in 1963 had his father's suits adjusted to fit him. And this was a wonderful gift. I mean, you imagine that, those beautiful suits, the beautiful wall, all those sorts of things, but then also imagine somebody not feeling that they can fill their father's footsteps, wearing those all the time. For some people, that would be absolutely delightful and a source of great pride. For Raymond, it is that. And it's also a sense that he cannot fulfill that. And so a sense of a burden that he doesn't know what to do with it. And so in a sense, uh, at one point, he says these clothes may be made to fit, but they will never be made to measure. And I suppose it's that's that if you like, that's a metaphor for that emotional inheritance that I'm talking about is how we might be in this case wearing somebody's. I mean, or there is the other thing, which is I am Raymond Wallace, but I am not Raymond Wallace. So what does that mean? Where do we get our names from? What does that mean? Are we named after somebody who we have no identification with? That's about somebody else's imposition on us, apart from, you know, an uncle who might have died 20 years before. We've got their name. Well, why? What does that mean to us? A surname that's always from the father in our culture, by and large. So what does that, why are we inheriting this patriarchal structure in our, you know, there's all sorts of different ways we can explore it. But those are two examples. Yeah. No, that's it. That's very interesting. You, as you've said, the book takes place over three time periods, the first being New York in the 1960s. You touched a little bit on that specific newspaper article, but presumably you must have had to have done a, a, a lot of other research to find out what it would have been like in a newspaper office at that time. And also, well, this this newspaper article also was a very good indication about attitudes toward gay men at the time. But yeah, I'd be interested in knowing some of the research that you did. So this all started, there's, there's a wonderful book, this book by Charles Kaiser called The Gay Metropolis. So I had my germ of an idea from this friend who told me this story. And by coincidence, I bought that book and began reading it. So The Gay Metropolis by Charles Kaiser is a wonderful history of gay life in America since World War II. I, I had to write off to the New York Times when I started working on this 20 years ago and got and bought a printout of the original article, which says growth of overt homosexuality in city provokes wide concern. So that was the beginning of that. In terms of research, it's, yes, the, the interest, I'm just, I'm researching another project at the moment, and there's somebody put it in a way that I'm almost certainly going to forget, but it's basically as, as queer people, we need to be looking for the things that were that are inferred quite often because by and large it was probably illegal to write it yeah and there are things that i don't know if you saw there's a there was an article yesterday about a, a roman dildo that was found in britain that that was originally catalogued 20 or 30 years ago as a darning tool <laughs> and when you see the image of it it 
It's definitely a dildo. Now, who, well, who knows if it's a dildo or if it's an image of a phallus. But in any way, it is definitely an image, a representation of a phallus. And what's interesting about that is that 30 years ago, it might well have been terribly obvious, but somebody went, well, I don't think we can say that. So what what could we say? Let's say it's a darning tool. It's, a, it's, a, it's at least a, a joke of a darning tool, if it's, not, if it's not that. Or it might be a pestle. Who knows? Okay, all right. Anyway, they're now saying with some certainty that it is some sort of some object representing the male um, section member. So that's a beautiful example for me of the sort of way in which I have to research, which is quite hard to research, what a gay bar was like in the 1960s. Because if you were there, you weren't talking about it. Mm-hmm. So I did ask. Um, so I was I was lucky enough to be in correspondence with Stephen Sondheim. And I asked him because he was the one person I knew who was alive in 63 and the gay man. And I asked him if he'd been to any bars and great, very sadly, he didn't go to any bars. But one crucial thing he told me, which is just a sideline, was how he found out about Kennedy's assassination, which he heard it on the radio in a cab en route to his analyst. And so from that little, although I'd asked him a question about bars, I ended up with a new piece of information about how I was then able to discuss and represent Kennedy's assassination in my book, which of course takes place in November of that year. So there's that. Then a friend of mine who's just turned 90, the marvellous Murray Melvin, who was Jeffrey in A Taste of Honey, but Joan Littlewood's theatre troupe, he was in the first cast of Oh, What a Lovely War. He's a wonderful, wonderful man, mentor and friend. And he said that when he was there in 64 with Oh, What a Lovely War, he went into a little men's shop and in the counter, they had beautiful pressed linen handkerchiefs and they were American linen. He said, so of course I had to have one of those. So there was one moment when I when I was, I needed Raymond to go in or I wanted Raymond to get some new clothing, going back to that discussion about wearing his father's suits. So I thought, what happens if he gets a budget for some new clothes? And then I went down a rabbit hole of trying to find out what what a department store, a very specific department store looked like in those days. What was the carpeting? What was this, that and the other? And to go to your point on research, yes, I did research it. And then I went, oh, this is way too complicated because I'm not going to be able to know. So I'm going to make it up. But what I have then, and I don't actually mention that they are American linen handkerchiefs, but when Raymond goes into the boutique that he goes into, which is called Threads in Greenwich Village, because I was like, well, there'll be it. They will have been a men's clothing store in Greenwich Village in those days. Joshua, who is the sales assistant, is folding handkerchiefs. And so in my mind, that tiny little detail from Murray, which which doesn't come in detail in my book, is something that is happening and therefore just adds a little bit of verisimilitude to that exchange, that fictional exchange. There was another very funny thing when I was looking for the newsroom in the New York Times, when I found what I was like, oh, this is brilliant. This is a newsroom. And it was a newsroom with those shoots where you, I mean, I've only, I don't think I've ever seen them in real life, but when they used to send things through to accounts where you put them into a little sort of a massive pill and then put it in a shoot and then a vac- you press a button and a vacuum would shoot it up to accounts or that sort of thing. And so there was a newsroom in the in New York Times, which looked like this and it was all square desks and some of these shoots and stuff like that. I was like, oh, brilliant. And I started to write that. And then I thought, I'm just going to double check that this was what it was like in 1963. And by complete chance came upon an article which had this photo of the refit that they did in 1960 or 61. So just before Raymond arrives, and suddenly it's circular desks and it's a circuit and it's circular lamps. And I was like, oh my God, thank God I looked that up because I could have, again, somebody would have gone, well, it wasn't like that, Sam. Mm. And, and actually it was really good to, and I'll have, there are all sorts of things. I also had to go at some point, you know what? There was only one person I knew who was in New York in 1963. So statistically, it's unlikely that many people are going to pick me up on two, but I've tried as much as I can to, to create detail. What's been really precious to me about things like the bar, which is an entirely, Little Navy is an entirely fictional establishment, is how people of the older generations than me queer people have read this book and gone, I don't know how you represented the exchange in the bar, but that's what it was like for me. So there is something I think there is, and I suppose that is an emotional inheritance that is actually about something different rather than parental inheritance. That's about an LGBTQ inheritance and a knowledge from who we are, from the the books that I've read of my ancestors, my queer ancestors. There's an inheritance there that I'm I'm really, really moved and and thrilled and satisfied that it seems people have said I've represented in a way that is true to them. So that's very meaningful. That takes me on, actually. I was I was really struck in the story about how 
Raymond realizes it, that it's only with Joey in New York that he sleeps easily for the first time, that previously he's lived in this kind of tension braced for attack, constantly needing to hide his true self. So I was going to say, yeah, do you think that feeling of tension resonates with people in the queer community still today? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think it's especially, I think that the areas where we can see that anxiety physically manifest itself is in trans people right now and the the way our culture is debating their rights. And I saw somebody cross out on Twitter the other day, trans rights are human rights. And instead of human, put the word there, trans rights are their rights. And I thought that's a really powerful thing to say, that actually it's, it's you know, it's like men legislating about pregnancy terminations. It's those debates about whose body is this. And, and so I do think that tension is certainly something that I've, you know, there are microaggressions that I experience a lot of the time, and it still happens now, you know, however, however liberated we might consider ourselves in our side and however lucky we might consider ourselves to be in our society. There are debates that go on every time the Pope says something horrendous about LGBTQ people. It, it's painful. It, it, it's 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 inflicting a, a wound and 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 what's interesting about it is if we replaced LGBTQ with black or Jewish, we'd have a very different perspective as a collective culture. So that that tension, I think, I think also, I was twenty before I had an a, an age of consent that was the same as heterosexual people. Just historically, I was forty because I, before I could get married, and those historical facts. They are achievements, they are milestones, they are changes, but there is a cost to those of us who have lived before those and with the inequality of those. Uh, I mean, I think there's a statistic, there's not a statistic, a historical fact about, I don't think women could get a mortgage on their own until something like 1976 or something without their husband or father or brother sign, co-signing it. These things, there's a cost to that, however unconscious that is. And that does manifest itself in attention. Now that point, you, the, the point you make about, there are all sorts of things that I've sort of magpie-like inherited and taken from different people. There's another project that I'm working on about a chap called Samuel Stewart, who is an astonishing figure. And there's a, a biography of his called Secret Historian by a guy called Justin Spring, which anyone who's interested, get yourself a copy and have a read. He's a fascinating, fascinating figure who was basically hidden, but was a correspondent of Gertrude Stein, Thomas Mann, Tennessee Williams, his autobiography book includes Rachmaninoff and Virginia Woolf. So he was a correspondent of all these different people. He lived in every decade of the 20th century and almost nobody's heard of him. I'm doing a piece on him because he was a correspondent of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. And he's an amazingly fascinating figure. But but that, that moment of tension, he said of himself, so I, I did lift this from him. He said that he was in, in such a state, he's a gay man, uh, at such a state of tension that even in sleep, he couldn't relax. And I thought that's that's a powerful thing for somebody who was born a bit earlier than Raymond. So he was born in 1909, but in the States. And I think that that level of vigilance is something that we can't underestimate. And that's vigilance that is about microaggressions, about the way people refer to us. So there's a moment in the book where Doty, Raymond's boss, who he's working on this article with, looks at his new clothes and said, they're a little faggy for my taste. But, you know, blah, blah, blah. and those sort of, I mean, microaggressions, they're very, very overt homophobia. But then there's also the physical threat of what it is to be walking down the street and to be identified and identifiable. My partner and I, we adopted a little girl in 2019, and the first six months of our parenthood were peppered with overt homophobic remarks shouting at us as we're walking through the park. That's a bad rap for your child. Somebody sh you know, shouts Leviticus at us as we're walking through the park. It was a, a, a sort of unbelievable hostility towards our visible queer family. And so there's a combination of, 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 as I say, a vigilance about just interactions and how you navigate and negotiate those feelings that you have when people are being homophobic or racist or misogynistic and how we navigate those, whether we're allies or whether we're imp impacted by those ourselves. But also, yes, a sense of need to protect oneself physically from potential actual physical harm. Yes, indeed. I was, uh, I've heard you talk about the care you took when you were able to, not to be too descriptive with the characters so that, for example, their ethnicity isn't made explicit, which means the reader can make their own kind of judgments from their own perspective about each person in the story. So why do you think that's important for a reader to be able to do that? That is a really lovely question. I think as a white cis male writer that if I don't do that, 
I don't know who can. And I'm a queer man, so it's slightly different. But I get that. But that's my that's my niche, if you like. And I think unless the book is about, I suppose, I've, I've my show that I wrote about Joan Littlewood, Miss Littlewood. I was very clear that I wanted that to be as representative in terms of the casting, and so was the company I was working with. Absolutely, that was something we didn't you know, we didn't have to discuss that really. But it was something that I put overtly into the play script. I was thinking of this as I was writing it because I'd just written a script for the first time. I suppose I was thinking of it in terms of actual interactions. And I was thinking of who I might imagine being cast in these roles. And then because I've been involved in those casting processes where in order to overcome unconscious bias, you have to consciously go, great, how representative are we actually being? Particularly if you're three white people in a room, you've got to say, right, sorry, let's just, sorry, can we just check this? Just check ourselves. We haven't called in people from this community or we haven't considered this or again how's the full balance of the cast looking and so I then suddenly went well hang on a second what if I don't make that explicit at all throughout it then that will mean that hopefully people can imagine who they want to imagine in those roles and that is something that is yeah it is important to me just just so that people can immerse themselves in the story and, if, and since the story, there is an element of it being about uh, one character has Roma heritage, two characters rather have Roma heritage. And so that is something that was very, con that I put in very consciously. But the rest of it, I wanted to go, what happens? How, how possible is that? Does that make a difference to people? Does that mean that people have greater access to it? And to be honest, I don't know the answer to that yet. I just decided that that was what my task was in this book, because I haven't, I haven't actually had that conversation with a lot of people. But that was my desire to 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 just go what would it be to keep this as open as possible yeah now that's very interesting how you drew on your experience from a theatrical point of view in fact now usually you are right at the stage for example yes you've written musicals for Royal Shakespeare Company how different is it to write for a novel when not all the story and the emotions are going to be conveyed through dialogue and the performances uh, and so was that a challenge for you well, what's funny is that I actually wrote, I, I, I would say that I was first and foremost a, a prose writer because I wrote this book, first draft of this 20 years ago, um, and then wrote a couple of other things and then genuinely retired as a novelist because I just didn't get any success at that stage at all. But not that's not quite fair. I got lots of nice comments and nobody wanted to publish anything that I'd written. But at the time, I found dialogue really difficult to write. So I'd write, I cut about 80% of that first draft when I did this new this new version for this published book because so much of it was really kind of erudite and and doer philosophical reflections on life and queerness and existence. And what, what happened when I began to write for the stage was that you can do elaborate stage directions. You know, Noel Coward does these. They're, they're sort of like novels within themselves. Which is, you know, she walks downstage, takes a sip of sherry and then puts her right hand on his left shoulder and leans in. And nowadays that's terribly old fashioned to do that. Some people might do it. But but actually, for my my book, it's very very old fashioned. So so I'd rather keep, give as much freedom to the performers as possible, and to put those hesitations or to let silences or speak for themselves or interruptions. If somebody doesn't speak, if somebody's in a room or in a in a scene but doesn't speak for three pages, they're not not there. They might feel they can't speak, or they're choosing not to speak, or they're so furious they don't want to speak. All these different things. Anyway, so. I had to discipline myself and learn how to write dialogue for that and take out the idea of stage directions. And then when I came back to editing my book, my, my editor really wanted me to, to say how a character was feeling. And I found it quite difficult initially to do that because I was thinking, well, we'd have to ask the actor. Because <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't an actor. So I then went, well, how am I going to represent that without that feeling too on the nose and make sure that that is part of the narrative rather than, in some senses, overly expositional for the reader? Because I, I don't enjoy reading books that are overly expositional. So at one point, when my editor said, how is Raymond feeling at this point? I represented that by Raymond discovering a little little hangnail on his thumb. And over a course of about four pages, he identifies it, causes himself a little bit of pain, pulls it off, and then sucks the blood on it. And so however we might feel when we are pulling off a hangnail and, and not doing it immediately and not feeling that we can do it publicly, 
that's how Raymond's feeling. And again, so leaving things open to interpretation, but putting in things that I think are about discomfort or pain. It's a very interesting difference in approaches to different processes, which, yeah, fascinating to hear about. Would you um, mind telling us what you're working on at the moment? Are there other books in the pipeline or are you busy now back working on musicals? I'm currently developing a draft of Dangerous Liaisons or Les Liaisons Dangereuses for theatre as a musical. And I am thrilled to say that since you and I last met, I've written about 20 pages. So I'm structuring it and I'm uh, in the process of doing what's called the treatment, but I'm also writing and, and, and I've worked out where the interval is and various other things. And I've worked out my take on it. And so, yes, I'm developing that at the moment, which is a big new venture for me and very exciting to work out how to tell that story, which is a magnificent story. What is interesting about it for me, talking about inferring, is it's much queerer than any representation that I've seen has identified in terms of particularly Madame de Merteuil and Cécile, that this what it was overt in terms of the illustrations that were there in the original publication, but haven't been explored to the degree that I think need to be explored by subsequent iterations. So I'm, that's my take on it. And I'm sure I'll get into trouble for that, but I'm quite looking forward to it. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that uh, uh, in, in future, very much indeed. So thank you very much, Sam, for talking to me. And I, uh, I wish you all the very best. Thanks, Kate. It's been such a pleasure. It was really interesting to hear from Sam about taking lessons he'd learned about inclusivity in theatre into the writing of his novel. Yes, and although an established playwright already, it definitely sounds like he's an author to keep on our radar for more releases in the future. Okay, so on to the next part of the podcast when Kate is going to be talking to Ren, who's one of our library team assistants, and Cordelia, an avid user of our BorrowBox service, about their book recommendations for Pride Month. Here's what they had to say. Hi, Ren. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. Um, so before we get on to your book recommendation, could you tell us a bit about your role at Hampshire Libraries? So I'm an AHC LTA, which basically stands for Annualised Hours Contract Library Team Assistant. So I work across four different libraries, Winchester, Eastleigh, Chalmersford and Alsford. And I have to deal with all the quirks that each of them has. And it's lovely being able to work across lots of different ones. Well, that, I was going to say, goodness, that's such a bunch of different libraries, but each library has its own character and personality. And I know several of them very well. Alsford, I don't know at all. Is that quite a small library? Yeah, it's it's the smallest one that I work in. It's next to a Tesco's Express um, and it's just a lovely little library, just an old building and it's got like old like Tudor style slats on the ceiling. So it's just a lovely building to be in. And it's just nice to go in and you kind of know everyone in the little libraries, like all the regulars and stuff. So it's really nice being able to talk to them when I go there. And it's always market day when I go there. So I'm very jealous of everyone out looking at the market. <laughs> And I guess a very big contrast to Winchester Library, where when you had some sort of new developments, some improvements at uh, Winchester, how recently was that? It feels like just the other day, but it was probably quite a long time ago now. I think it was last February. It was before I started working, because I was a volunteer before I started working in the library. So it's now opened as the ARC. Yeah, so it's completely different to what it looked like before, because Winchester's one of the libraries I came to when I was a little kid. So it's really weird to see it all different, but it's so cool at the same time, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I love the way that libraries have kind of figured as an ARC within your within your life story so far. First yeah. as a user, <laughs> as a volunteer, and now working there. So I, I guess you must be gearing up for the Summer Reading Challenge at the moment. It starts at the beginning of July. So is this an event you've been involved with before and something you enjoy? Yeah, so when I started working last year, like officially in my role, it was just as the Summer Reading Challenge was properly starting. So I started in the midst of it all. And yeah, it's really interesting. And I love talking to all the kids about their favourite books, especially ones that are a bit shy at first. And then they kind of like come out of their shell when they start talking to you about books and like their eyes light up talking about them. It's just really sweet. Yeah, for this year, we're because I'm at Winchester today, we've had a delivery of stuff specially for it. So it's very, it's exciting that I, that you know, it's coming up here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I can't wait. I can't wait. 
So let's talk about the books that we're going to recommend. So this month, it's a bit special as it's Pride Month, uh, which is a celebration of the LGBTQ plus communities all around the world. Something that's very close to the heart, I think, of the Library Network. So, Ren, would you like to tell us a bit about the book you've chosen and why you've chosen it? Yeah, of course. So the book I've chosen is The Unbroken by C.L. Clarke. It's a political fantasy. It kind of explores like the destruction of the deconstruction of colonialism because the author is black and it's kind of like their, you know, ancestry and history and stuff that they've taken inspiration from. And it's part of like the sapphic trifecta, which is like an online thing alongside the Jasmine throne and she who became the sun. So it's kind of, they're all like epic fantasies, which is very my, very my vibe. So I think from what I understand, I haven't read it myself, but the main character is a soldier and she is sent to kind of quash a rebellion, a colony that's rebelling against the the would-be soon-to-be queen. But she's actually been sent back to the area where she was stolen as a child and then kind of trained up to be a soldier for the empire. So it's a kind of, it's a parallel for colonization in our world, but it's in this sort of fantasy created world. Is that a kind of an accurate description of what we're talking about? Yeah, definitely. So it's got a lot of espionage and stuff because she does form a, I guess, a relationship with the soon to be queen. And so she is kind of like double agenting, agenting her way into this rebellion. But then lots of stuff is discovered about her past and where she came from and people who are now in the rebellion. So she has to then deal with all of the repercussions and all of these like ideas that she's grown up with being sort of dismantled by the two sides of her, basically. And yeah, I can understand this. Yeah, it's a lot about the kind of emotional experience of people who've been colonised like that and what they've been trained to believe and suddenly the sort of scales are falling from their eyes and they can see the reality of the situation. They start questioning stuff they've been taught. Yeah, definitely. When she goes back to sort of like, obviously she's flip-flopping between the two sort of like main locations. So when she goes back to see Luca, who's the soon-to-be queen, she's a bit like, oh, I don't know if I can trust her. And it's a lot of like, there. it, it does show a lot of character through kind of like the plot and the actions that both of them take, because they are the two main characters. And I want to say as well, it's got good disabled rep because Luca is disabled she uses a cane so that's like another thing as well it's nice to see books that are so diverse and does she do a a really a good job of building this world did it seem like a real world oh yeah definitely I would well especially in the first one and then I was lucky enough to receive an arc for the second one so it was it's really expanding from the first to the second and everything like it's so interesting to see how they explore more of the world in the second one and yeah like the characters and different people that you meet and kind of actually all the all the different people and the cast and everything that is explored it's so interesting to learn about them and you kind of talk about as a yeah sapphic fantasy but i wouldn't have said from what i've read there doesn't seem to be that much romance in it there is this relationship between the main character and luca this soon queen but it's a bit of a kind of complicated one because of the imbalance of power between them and so on would you have said that's right that it's not really a romantic read yeah so there's definitely feelings between the main two but they are so bogged down and complicated by obviously this environment that both of them are in and the roles that both of them play that it can't be like a pure romance but it is sapphic in the sense that they do have feelings for each other and things happen between the two without spoiling anything yeah so it's not romantic but there is romance in it yeah so yeah I noticed that it was kind of had this magic of the lost number one as its subtitle and then I saw that yeah and uh, there is a a new one so you've now read this new one and I believe this so this is going to be a whole series of different books about this world that she's created. Yeah it's really interesting and it's always it's when the front cover for the second one came out it was very exciting because you get to see the art for Luca for the first time because Terrain's on the first one and then Luca's on the second one so it's really cool to see how the author envisions them through the art as well. If, if somebody came into Winchester Library and you recommended to them what kind of things might they have said they liked for you to say actually this is the book for you I think you're going to like it. 
Definitely if somebody says that they have a big enjoyment of political stories, for sure. And a desire to have a more diverse reading set, I would definitely say. Like, as I said, it's got a lot of different characters in it and it's diverse from that point of view. And the author is diverse in identities as well that we might not necessarily see. It's important to uplift not only queer stories, but queer voices as well and queer authors so that you know, you're, you're diversing who you're reading from as well as the stories that you are reading. So definitely that as well. And if there's somebody enjoys fantasy and swords and magic, that's definitely the baseline of <laughs> my enjoyment. So I'd be very excited if somebody said they wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So we've been talking about The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. So Cordelia, have you come across C.L. Clark before or read any books like this before? No, I haven't. So I haven't read much fantasy, but it's a genre that I'd really like to read more of. So really appreciate the recommendation. I especially like the um, mention of disability representation as a disabled person myself. I think especially in queer books, it's rare to see that kind of intersection represented. So I'll check that one out. It sounds really good. Okay, thanks for that. So Cordelia, do you have a reading recommendation for us? Yeah, so the book that I wanted to talk about is one of my favourite books, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. So I'm a big Woolf fan. And yeah, I just really fell in love with this book, I think. It's brilliant. It's a classic, but it's often forgotten that it is, in fact, canonically queer. So tell me about the book. So how how is it structured and how would you say that it does relate to queer writing? The book takes place in just one day. So it chronicles the day of a middle to upper class 50 year old woman named Clarissa Dalloway. And it's about her preparing for and then hosting a party at the end. And the structure of it is very inventive form. Some people would describe it as stream of consciousness. However, it's more something called free indirect discourse because instead of just being in Clarissa Dalloway, the main character's head. The narrative jumps from person to person to person to get a really full picture of that specific moment, which is one of the things I really like about it. And so Virginia Woolf was really interested in cubism, the art movement, and how that way of painting was to try and capture that kind of 3D element. And that's kind of represented within the form, and which I, I think it was written 100 years ago and no one's been able to achieve something like that ever since. I didn't know about that connection to cubism. That really is interesting because I remember studying cubism and being fascinated by that idea of trying to use a 2D painting in order to capture 3D objects. And the idea that she was applying that to writing is, is extraordinary. So you, you haven't mentioned about, because I've read the book ages ago and I hadn't thought of it as having any connections with what well, we're talking about Pride Month. So in the book, one of the main themes is that Clarissa Dalloway is sort of reckoning with her identity, feeling like she's losing it as she's in her 50s and what that means to be a woman in her 50s at the time in the 1920s. And then there's also a reckoning with her like loss of sexuality. And she describes how her cooler, more platonic feelings towards her husband, Richard, and then compares them to her strong, intense emotions and desire she had for someone in her past when she was younger named Sally. And yeah, so it's a kind of comparing the two relationships. And she really spends a lot of the book because the book is set in two different time frames. One is the present and then the other is this past life when she was in her 20s yeah so it's a kind of looking back on the only time she's ever actually felt desire in her life and it's quite sad I think it's yeah it's a kind of testament to what being queer meant in that time mm, yeah when it was uh, something that you couldn't write about or talk about or express not easily today but uh, differently today hearing you talk about it uh, reminded me of, of reading the hours by Michael Cunningham which came out, goodness, I looked it out, I couldn't believe it came out in 1998. And that's about three generations of women affected by the novel, Virginia Woolf herself in, in the 1920s, uh, Mrs. Brown in 1940s Los Angeles, and then the present day New York hostess where she's a wealthy woman planning a party for a friend who is um, dying of AIDS. Um, so I can really recommend that book. I haven't read Mrs. Dalloway for ages, but it does make me think there's so much of it I missed and I would like to give it a revisit. So, Rena, have you uh, have you read any Virginia Woolf? 
I've read Orlando, but that's the only one that I have read because as a non-binary person myself, I really appreciate like, the gender exploration in that. So obviously the flip-flop between genders and stuff in that is really interesting, especially when trying to work out my gender identity. It was like one of those books that it was like, they, they kind of understand me actually, yeah, even though it was written like obviously a very mm. long time ago. Yeah. I love Orlando. It's a brilliant book. It's not one I've read, but I really would like to. Uh, it does sound really interesting. Virginia Woolf was queer herself. And the relationship she's talked about between Richard, her husband and Sally, is sort of mirrors, potentially mirrors the relationship she had in real life with her husband, who she, it was a more platonic relationship compared to Vita Sackville West. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. And we've been talking about uh, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. And I'm going to talk about a long-standing favourite of mine, which is The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst, which won the Booker Prize back in 2004. This is also set in different time frames, three different time frames during the 1980s, all of which is a very, was a very significant time in politics. Margaret Thatcher makes an appearance and about the impact of of AIDS. And it starts in the early 80s when the central character, Nick, moves into the house of this very wealthy family called the Feddens, who he knows through um, his university friend, Toby, who he's always had a a kind of secret crush on. Uh, And one of the central themes of the story is this tension behind Nick's relationship with this family and the secrets he keeps for them and from them. And I love it for lots of different reasons, partly because it's he just writes so beautifully. But it also touches on lots of ideas and themes that I've mean a lot to me, one of which is its title, A Line of Beauty. For some reason, I've always had a really great love. I've always been really interested in the OG arch, which is formed by these two S shapes. It's like that kind of onion shape you get in windows and things in Gothic architecture. But that S shape, which forms the either side, has been described by artists as the line of beauty. And that forms a really central running thread through the novel. It's used in different ways to as a metaphor for different things. So I love that about it. Something that's really special to me that gets seized on as a central and unusual theme within a book. But yeah, it is a novel that I absolutely loved. It reminded me of all sorts of other books that I love as well. For example, there's a lot of parallels and similarity, I think, with Bryce Hedry Visited, which is an old favourite of mine. So I was going to ask, is this a book that either of you have read? I don't know whether it's one you've read, Ren? No, I haven't read it. No, I have heard of it because at our collection, special collection in Winchester for LGBTQIA plus books that me and a co-worker look after, it is on our shelves, but I haven't read it. Well, it's, yeah, as I say, it's beautifully written. And how about you, Cordelia? Is this one you've come across? Yes, I have read it and it is one of my favourite books. I was going to say, Ren, that you might like it for its politics that's similar to what you were saying about the unbroken. It's the political element of it is a big part of the story and one that I found really, really interesting. It's it's really, really good. I found a lot of it takes place during the AIDS crisis and I found that it's a hard, hard, hard read. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. You both sold me on it. He, he is a great writer, I think. Okay, well, thank you for your recommendations. But before we finish talking about our book recommendations, I wanted to ask both of you if you had any other books you'd like to mention which touch on LGBTQ plus issues. So if I perhaps if I could start with you, Ren, if you've got any other that you might want to give a, an honourable mention to. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, the Unbroken is part of the Suffolk trifecta, as it's known online, along with the Jasmine Throne and She Who Became the Sun, which are also two of my favourites. The Jasmine Throne especially, that's like a similar vein of political magic fantasy. And it was very hard to choose between that and the Unbroken for this. And it's an Indian-inspired fantasy world. And yeah, it's about a princess and somebody who's like her maid who comes and looks after her because she's been captured and she learns all of they both learn basically they love each other but also how to sort of deal with all of these political repercussions that are happening within their world and then for she who became the sun similar vein of political fantasy but the main character explores their gender identity a lot Kind of similar to Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. So she dresses up like a boy to sort of survive in the world that she has been put into. She becomes a monk and then it kind of follows her life and the things that happen to her as she becomes this monk and then she gets drawn into all this 
politics and this war and everything that she then has to deal with and then the internal feelings of how she feels about presenting as a man and how that affects her relationships. That sounds uh, sound great. It is interesting how fantasy and science fiction can be used like this to give us an alternate world where ideas can be explored and identities can be tried out in a way that an author perhaps couldn't so easily if, if they were forced to use contemporary society. Yeah, that is something that really draws me to both of those genres because fantasy and sci-fi are two of my favourites because you can make a world that is so normalised, like a queer identity is so normalised, or you can explore kind of the real historical things that we had to go to as a society but within a world and the universe and a narrative that explores it in a different way and it's not quite so overt. Yeah no I was interested to hear that your the special collection you've got the shelf at uh, Winchester so were you involved in selecting different titles for that or is it uh, just something that you look to to add to as new titles come out? Yeah, so it was there, it existed before I joined the library team. My colleague Jordan started it, but when I joined, I showed a very big passion for wanting to help out with that, especially after I helped out at Eastleigh Pride last year, like as the library, we went to that and I kind of organised everyone for that. Yeah, I've done lots of different bits and bobs for the collection now. Like we've got reading lists that me and Jordan have curated and we've got little postcards with little recommendations on for lots of different genres and ages and everything. Yeah, and we just add to it all the time. It's getting a bit full up, to be honest now, but you can never have too many. (laughs) So if somebody came to Winchester Library and they wanted to know more about that, should they go and ask at the desk about it or would they be able to find it in the shelves? Yeah, so they can find it, if anybody knows Winchester Library, it's just under the main stairs, just the left-hand side, near the large print and the audiobooks. But everybody is more than happy to chat about it. And the reading lists have been sent out to other branches so that everybody across all of the library service knows what books. I think that's important that people have the books that they can see themselves in in the library. No, that that sounds really great. It's great to be able to mention that now. Okay, so what about you, Cordelia? Could you give me uh, uh, some of your recommendations as well? Yeah, so a book that I just finished reading that I really enjoyed is called One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. So it's about two young women falling in love in New York City with a time travel twist. So it's got some kind of light fantasy element. And I really like how that is used to kind of symbolize a sort of the magic otherworldly sense that some relationships can feel like, especially sort of like a love at first sight kind of thing. So I really enjoyed that one. I'm also currently reading Stone Butch Blues, which I am loving. It is a seminal historical fiction following main character Jesse as they grapple with their sexuality and gender in the 1950s. Written by Leslie Feinberg, who was at the forefront of transgender activism. They're amazing. Yeah, it's a really a call to action kind of book. Hard read, but really, really, really brilliant. Uh, Another of my favourites is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, uh, which is a really interesting look at kind of the intersection of race and sexuality set in Paris in the 1950s. Really, really beautiful. I also want to recommend a book called In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. This was a recent release. It's a memoir about the experience of living in an abusive same-sex relationship really interesting portrayal of this side to LGBTQ stories that's often overlooked and sort of erased from the narrative. Really beautiful prose, really inventive use of form. I've never read anything like it. Really, really rate that one. And lastly, because Pride started as a protest and is always a protest, I want to recommend The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay, which is a non-fiction book giving a wide overview of what it means to be trans in Britain today. It's a book so persuasive and clear. It's manifesto that has its roots in trans justice, but reaches out to solidarity and justice for all. It's brilliant, really, really, really informative. Well, thank you both for all of those recommendations. We will make sure to include the list from both of you on the show notes of the podcast. Before we finish completely, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Box and particularly its collection of audiobooks, because I know they've been particularly important to you, Cordelia, in the last couple of years. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I'm chronically ill and have issues with fatigue and headaches. And one of the things I used to love 
most in life was reading. But unfortunately, since becoming ill, I can't read for longer than five or 10 minutes as it makes my headaches worse. But I found that listening to audiobooks has been a massive help for me. It's enabled me to read again. And I use them to relax, to escape the world when it's hard and it's been great so I primarily use BorrowBox because it's a really good service and get them for free they've got a really good collection of books always updating with new stuff they do good selections there was a really good disability week one and and things like that so I get some really good recommendations from there but yeah that's primarily what I use and I I use it every day all the time love it now that's really good to hear. And uh, Ren, Ren, how about you? Are you an audiobook fan? Yeah, definitely. Especially the ones on BorrowBox as we're talking about that. The Legends and Lattes audiobook is amazing. It's like high fantasy, low stakes. So it's about an orc running a coffee shop and it's narrated by the author himself. It's one of those ones that if somebody said, oh, I want to get into fantasy, but I don't know where to start. I'd be like, this is the audiobook for you. <laughs> Listen to this. It's great. And similarly, the Six of Crows audiobook is also amazing. Mm. So well, so well done. <laughs> That's been on my list for a while. It's very, very well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I am a massive fan of audiobooks. Um, I have just finished reading or yeah, listening to Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keith, which I got from uh, Borrowbox and was an extraordinary 18 hours of audio, but I whistled through it so quickly because it was such an interesting read. Okay, well, thank you both very much for some inspiring book choices. And we will look forward to seeing you at uh, Winchester or Chandersford or the Eastleigh. No, I'm trying to remember the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, good luck with the uh, Summer Reading Challenge as well. And Cordelia, good luck with, with your reading and with your ongoing recovery. So thank you very much to both of you. What a varied list of recommendations. I'm always so excited to hear what our teams come up with. And also, it's nice to hear from a, a library user as well. And as we mentioned in our chat with Ren, libraries are, as we speak, getting ready for this year's Summer Reading Challenge. The theme this year is all about sports and it's called Ready, Set, Read. It all kicks off on Saturday the 15th of July. So if you've got a primary school age child in your life, then that's the time to get them down to their nearest library or onto the Kids Zone section of our website to get involved. We'll pop a link to that in our show notes. But that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you to Ren and Cordelia and thank you for listening. I'm Hattie Dulac. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. 